Um, I never turn down an opportunity to talk, so it's my wife makes plain all the time. But uh, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. So if you have a Bible, open to Galatians chapter 2. And we're just going to be looking at verses 15 and 16 this morning. And so we're going to read that text, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into our time together. And I realized I, um, I titled the sermon... And I'm, I'm not usually one to title sermons. I don't usually do that. I, I'm not very creative. Uh, and so I figure if I title it, I'm just going to mess it up anyway. But it's titled The Hopelessness of Works and the Majesty of Christ. And I was thinking about the word hopelessness, and I was kind of thinking the word hopelessness and helplessness kind of go hand in hand with each other. You know, oftentimes when we feel hopeless, we also feel helpless, and vice versa, when we feel helpless, we also tend to feel hopeless as well. So I think maybe a more appropriate title this morning could be the, the helplessness slash hopelessness of works and the majesty of Christ. And I'll just tell you right now, at the, uh, at the outset, you know, no secrets aside, it is my prayer this morning that as we gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will collectively stand in awe of the majesty of Jesus Christ. I have no other aim this morning, no other goal than that all of us together would stand in awe of the beauty and wonder of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 together. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you this morning, Lord, anxious to hear you speak. And God, I come confessing that I have very little to say, Lord, but you have much to say to us through your word. And so, Father, I pray in in earnestness and in honesty that I would hide behind the shadow of the cross and that Jesus would be magnified this morning, Father. That Christ would be exalted and that we, your people, collectively together, Father, that we would be fed, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, Father, that we would be edified by your word. Father, we gather together week in and week out because of what Christ has accomplished for us. That is why we come. That's why we gather as brothers and sisters is to glorify Jesus Christ, to encourage one another by our faith in Christ and to sing out to this world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that one has come who has made a way for us to be made right. And so, Father, I just pray this morning that Christ would be exalted as we look at your word. Father, would you give me words to speak that would be edifying and encouraging to us all? Guard my mouth from foolishness or silliness, Lord, and may I only speak words that are helpful. We surrender this time to you and ask that you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know, many of you or all of you, I don't know if you've ever felt hopeless, right, or helpless, right? I'm not talking just kind of like despondent or a little bit, you know, confused, but I mean like, I mean like no hope hopeless. I mean like end of your rope, kind of wind out of your sails, helplessness or hopelessness. I've, I've felt that way before. Uh, it's kind of interesting because it was in this very city that I felt this way. Uh, my family and I moved to Augusta, Georgia in January of 2010. And we lived on the south side of the city. That's where all the cool stuff happens. I don't know if you've ever been to the south side, but you, you need to spend some more time down there. It's pretty hip. 
So we moved to the south side, and I came here with two young daughters, one who was about to be four and one who had just turned two years old, and a very pregnant wife, also very beautiful, too, in case she listens to this later. So beautiful and pregnant, always beautiful, not always pregnant. Um, and so we were, we were planning to have our, our son, our first son, uh, at this little local hospital where we lived before here. We, we lived in Marion, South Carolina. I don't know if any of you know where that is. Uh, but it's almost to Myrtle Beach. Uh, it's, it's kind of like uh, Radiator Springs from the movie Cars. Right? It's like the town that time forgot. And so we were going to have our son there at that little hospital. Of course, when we moved here, things changed. Right? We got a new doctor and a new hospital. And University Hospital was where we were going to have our son, Asher. And so the day, the day before Asher was born, my wife you know, was kind of feeling like things were moving along, right? like it's time to go to the doctor. And so it was, it was late at night, and we went to the hospital, and we go up to the, what is it, the third floor, I think, or where the maternity ward is, and uh, not many people there, which was a little disconcerning at first. I was like, shouldn't, shouldn't this place be fully stocked? Uh, we found somebody, and we said, hey, look, this lady thinks she's going to have a baby. Uh, and so we, we were here for that purpose. And so they, they start testing my wife. You know, they, they hook her up to some machines just to see how things are going. Uh, and as time goes on, they, they, they say to us, you know, we're not really excited about what we're seeing. And they weren't concerned. They weren't worried. But they just weren't excited. Uh, evidently, my, my little son, Asher, his heartbeat wasn't doing what they wanted it to do. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Maybe you can. But evidently, birth is a very traumatic event for a child. And so they like to see a heartbeat that kind of fluctuates, and, and his was like stone cold, just like, just kind of steady, steady pace, like, like international spy, I don't get confused or worried about anything, just steady heart. So they're giving her sugar water, feeding her donuts, doing all kinds of stuff, seeing if his heartbeat will go kind of cuckoo, and it doesn't. And they say, well, look, we, we want to keep you overnight for observation. Okay, great. So my mother-in-law's at home with the, uh, the two other kids, and as we're there overnight, things start to progress naturally, as they do. And she's progressing in, in birth. And I've, I've been here twice as my third time now, you know, kind of know the ropes, and, and things are moving along nicely. And so the doctor comes in, and, and to kind of accelerate the process, he decides he's going to break her water, right, to get things moving along. And I still remember his exact words when he did that. He, he broke her water, and then he said, uh-oh. I said, uh-oh. What you mean, uh-oh, right? He didn't say anything. He turned, he went and grabbed a telephone, and he called some people. And I remember my wife, she said, you know, how long do you think till Asher is born? And he said, you need to have this baby within the next hour. And I thought, man, I have not heard this before. The other two times we had a baby didn't happen like this. Now, I, I had watched both of my daughter's births. Uh, with my second daughter, I was a little more involved. It was just me and the, the, the doctor for a while. I was like, we need more people here. Um, <laughs> I am not skilled in this. Uh, but I watched both of them be born. And, and they were born just like you imagine, right? Like you see it on TV. They came, they came into the world just as kids come into the world. They were screaming and, and kicking and wiggling and wailing, you know? And, and, and so baby number one, screaming, kicking, wailing, wiggling. Baby number two, screaming, kicking, wiggling, wailing, doing everything you expect a child to do. And then Asher was born. And he came in just cold, gray, silent, no noise. And I watched, and I've never seen a doctor move so fast. And he got the child, and he took the, the umbilical cord, and he snipped it, and, he, and, he, and he, he tied it off, and then he quickly handed my newborn off to nurses. And I sat there, and I watched 
as this newborn baby, not, not but a, a second into the world, they're doing chest compressions on my son. And they're trying to innovate him, trying to get a breathing tube down his throat. And my wife, my wife is on the bed, and she doesn't know what happens. She says, why is he not crying? Why isn't he making noise? Why isn't my baby crying? And, and for six or seven long minutes, we sat there in silence. And we just watched and we waited. And my child was just on this table, and these doctors and nurses were working. And, and in that moment, we had nothing. I was helpless. All my strength and my, my limited medical knowledge was of absolutely no use in that situation. We were utterly hopeless. We were utterly helpless. And all we could do was look to those doctors and those nurses and trust that they knew exactly what they were doing. By God's grace and mercy, they did know exactly what they were doing. And now I have a happy, healthy, very skinny. He's kind of odd. He's a skinny little wiry guy, almost five-year-old. Now, if, if you've been in a situation like that, chances are that it's that's not a feeling or an emotion that you want to experience again, right? We don't, we don't set out, we don't search out those moments of helplessness and hopelessness. But it is my earnest desire this morning to bring us collectively all into that emotion and sit under the weight of our hopelessness and our helplessness to justify ourselves through works. So Paul is writing about in the book of Galatians, he's writing about your hopelessness, our hopelessness, our helplessness to justify ourselves by works. And then as we experience that, as I hope we experience that hopelessness, that helplessness, that, that, that feeling that, that collectively together we will turn our eyes towards Christ and we will see his majesty and his greatness and his glory and what he has accomplished for us. But before we can experience the, the hopelessness or the helplessness of our, of our attempts to be justified by works, we first need to kind of understand what justification is. It's one of these words that you pay a lot of money in seminary to learn, right? They, they, it's actually what happens. I don't know if you've been to seminary, but you give them a lot of money, and then they give you these vocabulary cards, and you have to memorize them. It's like justification, sanctification, uh, what's that big one? Oh, eschatological stuff. Uh, we, we have, Jeremy knows them all. He's super intelligent. Um, but we need to know what justification is and, and how it relates to us, right, before we can kind of collectively come under the weight of our helplessness there. So what is justification? Well, justification really sits at the heart of this letter that Paul is writing. Right? He's writing to these young churches in this area of Galatia, and he is writing to them because these young Christians, these young believers have come under attack. right? And they've come under attack from a group that we now call the Judaizers. And so these Judaizers are coming to these young churches, these young Christians, and they're beginning to sow this seed, this teaching among them that basically states that if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be justified, if you really want to have life in Christ, you have to be circumcised. Right now, on the surface, it might not seem like that dangerous of a teaching, right? I mean, didn't Christianity kind of come out of Judaism and circumcision is central to the Jewish faith? So maybe they're on to something, right? Paul himself is a Jew, and maybe they're on to something. But Paul rightly understands that this teaching, this, this, this idea that these Judaizers are introducing into the, these young congregations is, is unbelievably dangerous. 
Because he understands that this teaching that they're bringing in, it, at- it attacks the, the very heart of the gospel, the very truth of the gospel. It attacks the doctrine of, of justification. In fact, Paul uses those same words when he talks in verse 5. He says, To them we do not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul understands that the teaching of these Judaizers attacks the truth of the gospel, which is this doctrine of justification. So what is justification? Well, justification or justified, it's a, it's a legal word. right? It's a legal term. It's, it's the act whereby a guilty person is proclaimed innocent or just. Right, so we think of a court of law. I don't know if you've ever been to a court or, or sat in a, a court for any kind of reason. It can be a kind of terrifying place. Uh, one time I went to court. This is, just a, this is a public service announcement. One time I went to court and I was wearing shorts. You, you don't want to do that. Yeah, I had no idea until I got there and I read the sign. Don't wear shorts or you can be held in contempt of court. So that's just a public service announcement. If you do go to court, pants. You're going to want to wear pants. Right? But if you go to court, say a defendant comes into court, there's two options, right? There's two options when you enter court. Option one is you are found guilty. Right? You are found guilty of the crime for which you've been accused, and therefore you are, uh, you are susceptible to any appropriate punishment that comes with the crime which you have committed. That's option one. You're guilty, and you deserve punishment. Option number two is you are found innocent, and you are justified. In the eyes of the law, you are seen as innocent, as just. You have never broken the law for which you have been accused. And so justification, this legal term, revolves around this idea of being declared innocent. You've been accused of a crime, but now in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the court, you're justified. You're innocent. You're declared righteous. And so justification is this legal term that we find in the scriptures. It's this legal term because the, the reality is that, that all of us, we, we stand before the judge of all the earth, right? That's what Abraham calls God. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So really all of us live day in and day out within the courtroom of God. And so justification is a very important term for us because justification deals with innocence or being just before the judge. So how does it connect to us? How does this doctrine of justification come down and connect into our hearts and lives? And well, the fact is you probably know how it does already. Because the truth of the matter is, is that the Bible has painted two very, very clear pictures for us. Right, sometimes you go to the Bible, you read the Bible, and you tend to get a little confused sometimes. Right? Some things are kind of muddy, they're difficult to understand. But there are two things in the Scriptures that are abundantly clear. And the first is that God is holy and righteous. And that He is perfect in His holiness and His righteousness. In Psalm 7, the psalmist says that God is a righteous judge. And in Psalm 11, it says, For the Lord is righteous and He loves righteousness. He loves righteous deeds. And so you don't have to read the Bible very long to find out that God is righteous and holy and He is perfect in His righteousness and holiness and He loves and He delights in righteousness. Unfortunately, you don't have to read the Bible very long to learn the other very clear thing that we read in the Scriptures, and that is that collectively, all of us, all mankind, in our natural condition, are unrighteous and unjust. And not only are we unrighteous, but we love unrighteousness. 
We delight in unrighteous deeds. We find joy and happiness and satisfaction in sin. And so we are on the completely opposite spectrum of God. On one side, the Bible says, here is a holy and righteous judge who delights eternally in righteousness. And on the other side is humanity, who in their rebellion and in their sin are completely and utterly unrighteous and delight in unrighteousness. Paul says this so plainly and so clearly in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, the Apostle Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Jews and Greeks, that's humanity, right? That's everybody. You're either a Jew or you're not. You're either a Jew or a Gentile, right? So Paul says everybody are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Romans 3.23 sums it up for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's the situation. All mankind in our rebellion and sin, we stand before the, God, the judge of all the earth and the declaration that rings out from that, from that heavenly courtroom, the, the gavel comes down and it cries out, guilty, guilty, guilty. All of you are guilty. None of you are just, none of you are righteous, none of you does good, all of you collectively in your sinfulness and your rebellion, you are all guilty. And this is the problem is that before the throne of God, all mankind, we stand in our unrighteousness and we stand in our guilt and we are rightly declared to be unjust. And then we know what awaits the guilty. What awaits the guilty is the punishment that is befitting their crime. That's what the Bible calls hell. We don't talk about it at parties, do we? Not a very chipper conversation. But it's real and it's true. And the Bible says that all of us are unjust, all of us are unrighteous, all of us are guilty before the throne of God, and all of us deserve hell. God wasn't joking in the garden when he looked at Adam and said, if you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. God doesn't mince words. He doesn't play around. And so this, this, this is where Paul's words, they hit us in our heart. And this is where that, that helplessness and that hopelessness just rests upon us like this immovable weight because if we look at the end of verse 16, where Paul summarizes his short thought here, he says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
By works of the law, no one, not one of you, nobody from the greatest of us to the least of us, none of us will be justified by works of the law. Essentially what Paul is saying here to shorten it down is he's saying there is nothing you can do to be justified. Nothing. You go to court, you can pay a fine and the, and the judge says it's okay. You go to jail, you serve your time, you come out, it's okay. But what Paul is saying, he's saying in the heavenly court of God, there is absolutely nothing you can do to be justified. You stand before God guilty, and all of your greatest efforts, all of your greatest works should be piled in one on top of the other, are complete dung and rubbish and trash before the God of all the universe. There is nothing you can do to be justified. There is nothing you can do to to escape the righteous condemnation and judgment of God against you because of your guilt. Nothing. And I ask you, do you start to feel the hopelessness of our situation? Do you start to feel the helplessness of our situation that we look at ourselves and we're guilty, we're covered in guilt, and then Paul cries out, there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Well, maybe you sit here and you think, well, Dan, I don't really feel that hopeless because I know this. I know this. I go to church. I've heard preachers preach and I've read the Bible and I know that you can't be justified by works of law. I know this. But here's the problem, church. Here's the problem, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that I think all too often we live in a functional denial of this truth. We live and we move day in and day out in a functional denial of this truth that there is nothing we can do to be justified. And here is a very simple test. Think to yourself, have you ever thought in your mind, God really likes me because I come to church. God is happy with me because I gave my tithe. You know, God is pleased with me because I went on that one-week mission trip and I had to sit in the middle next to two big giant guys who snored the whole entire time and smelled like they worked on a hog farm. So God is so unbelievably satisfied with me. I know you think that way. I know you've thought that way because I have thought that way. And I think that way sometimes. And I promise you this right now, that those thoughts that run through our mind are no less of an attack on the doctrine of justification than what these Judaizers were sowing among the churches of Galatia. Those thoughts and those, and those, those things that intrude in our mind, those are attacks from Satan that say, you're not justified in Christ, you're justified by what you do. Don't believe what Paul says, you're not hopeless, you're not helpless. Come on, man. You're not as bad as that, dude. Look what he did. You're way better, man. Was he in church last week? No. Did he give anything for offering? No. Did he go on a mission trip? No. You did. Check, check, check. God's happy with you. And these thoughts and these ideas, if Apostle Paul were here, he would say that's anathema. That's a curse. That's an attack on the truth of the gospel because you can do nothing to justify yourself. Do you feel it yet? You feel the helplessness and the hopelessness now. As we stand before the God of all the earth, and he cries out, rightly so, guilty, guilty, guilty. And then we realize there's nothing we can do. Like my wife and I, that day in the hospital room, when all we could do, all we could do in that moment 
is cry out to Christ and look at those doctors. The only option that the Apostle Paul leaves us, the only option the Scriptures leave us, the only option God has left us is to look to His Son. To look to the beauty, the majesty, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law. We know that. Paul just told us that. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified. Paul says our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ, the end of it, the goal of it, the purpose of it, is our justification. We are justified, Paul says, by our faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works of the law, not by anything we can do, because we can't do anything to be justified. So All we can do is in faith and trust look unto Jesus Christ and see him and rest all of our trust, all of our hope in Christ. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question becomes, what what is that? What does that look like, faith in Jesus? What are we supposed to believe about Jesus? Paul says we have faith in Jesus. We've believed in Jesus Christ, and this leads to our justification. So the, the question is, what do we believe about Jesus? What is our, our faith about him? Well, do we believe that he existed? Is that what Paul's talking about? Like there was a guy, his name was Jesus, he roamed the earth, walked around, did some crazy stuff, and then died. Is that what we're supposed to believe? Are we supposed to believe maybe he was a great teacher, he was a great preacher, he was a great prophet of God? Is that what we're supposed to believe? Is that the heart of the gospel, that we believe that Jesus was a great preacher or a great teacher or a great prophet? No. What we believe about Jesus and what Paul believes about Jesus and what those with him believe about Christ and where their faith rests in Jesus Christ is it rests in what Christ has accomplished, what Christ has done. It rests in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Those are some other big words that I paid a lot of money to learn. Essentially what it means is we believe that Jesus Christ, he lived an absolutely perfect life. Christ never sinned in action or in thought. He alone was worthy of all of God's riches and blessings to be poured upon him. And yet instead of receiving the gift that was truly his, instead of saying, yes, God, I have walked in absolute righteousness. I have walked in absolute perfection to your word. I have stood up against the fiery darts of of Satan and I have succeeded over sin. Instead of receiving the reward which was his, which was righteousness for all eternity in heaven. Instead, he walks to a crappy little hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha. And he climbs upon a a nasty, blood-stained wooden cross and he stretches out his arms and he takes upon himself our punishment. He goes to the cross and what the Apostle Paul says is that he who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf. That's the substitution. Who should have been on that cross? I should have been on that cross. You should have been on that cross. Who should have drank the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God? I should have drank the cup of the wrath of God. You should have drank the cup of the wrath of God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that he went to the cross, that he took upon himself the wrath of God for all those who would put their hope and trust in him. And his life was poured out to the very end, so much so that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the most ridiculous, absurd way possible, something that makes no sense to our our tinkery, dinkery little minds, God says, all you who repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in my son, you shall receive his righteousness. Are you serious? 
Are you serious? That's it? That's it? I look to Christ and I, and I trust in what he's accomplished. I place my faith and hope and trust in the fact that he died on the cross instead of me. And I, I place my faith and my hope and trust in the promises of God that if I believe in Jesus and believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, I'll receive his righteousness. As Paul says, I'll be clothed in his righteousness. Are you serious? There must be something I have to do. There must be a catch, right? There's always a catch to every good deal. It's the fine print that comes at the bottom, right? God says there's no catch. I don't joke. I don't mince words. If I say it's so, it's so. And so when the Apostle Paul says we've believed in Jesus, he says we believe that Christ on that cross, he took our sin, he took our shame, he took our guilt, he took our wrath, so that now through him we receive his righteousness. And we stand now before the judge of all the earth. And as Abraham says, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And he will declare us just and righteous before him, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so justification is not found in what you can accomplish, but it is found in what Christ has done. On the cross, he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. He looks up to his father and he says, I have accomplished their justification, father. What they could not do, weakened by sin, I have done. And now all those who repent of their sin and place their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ are justified. No longer do we stand before the judge of all the earth in our guilt and our shame and our sin and our filth. We stand before the throne of God, justified, clothed in the righteousness of his son. That is why it's called the gospel. Because there is no better news Good news is that we are not justified by works, but we are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? I want to give you three, probably four, uh, points of application that I think we can take away from this truth this morning, that we are not justified by works, but we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The first is that understanding that we are justified through faith alone works to crush pride and facilitate Christ-honoring humility. I want to say that again. Understanding that we are justified by faith in Christ works to crush, destroy, obliterate pride and facilitate and grow and produce Christ-honoring humility. All of us are prideful. All of us are. If you're not proud, you're proud of your not pride pridefulness. Does that make sense? Uh, Benjamin Franklin one time talked about humility, and he said humility is, is so difficult because if we achieve humility, we will become proud of our own humility. So we're all proudful. We all have pride in us. We all long to take credit for our own accomplishments. And, and if you don't think this will move and work into its way into our life with Christ, then you are foolish beyond all belief. I apologize, but you are. Because pride is this deadly serpent that seeks to usurp Christ in our hearts. But as we begin to understand, as we begin to think, and as we begin to meditate on the fact that we are not justified by anything we have done, there are no amount of good works that I have accomplished, I've earned my justification, but is solely what Christ has accomplished on my behalf. It begins to work to deconstruct pride in our hearts and to elevate Christ in our lives. 
And for us to humbly come before Christ and declare it is because of what you have done, O Lord, that I am set free. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. None may boast. For we, church, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he, God, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So application point number one, understanding that we are justified through faith, works to crush pride and facilitate Christ-honoring, Christ-glorifying humility. Second, understanding that we are fully, fully justified by faith gives us great encouragement. Gives us great encouragement. When I was young, I've, I've been about this size, maybe a little thinner, actually. I've put on quite a bit of weight. Um, you know when people say they lose weight? I'm the guy that comes behind you and finds it. Um, so uh, I was this size since I was young, like eighth grade. And my dad would always say to me, he'd say, you know, there's always somebody bigger and stronger. And there's always somebody bigger and stronger and faster and smarter and better looking and nicer and sweet. There's always somebody, right? You're never at the top of the heap, right? And this can become a rather like discouraging thing, right? Like you're like, I want to be really good, but how come that guy is always so much better than me, right? And this can become discouraging. See, when we base our, when we base our position or our identity or who we are off of what we've accomplished, and we, we, have, we have two things that happen almost simultaneously, and they're ridiculous that they work together, but we have like, unending pride at how much we have accomplished and, and equally unending like, discouragement at how much we haven't. And it's weird that these two things can coexist together, but when we base our life off of what we've done, this is what happens. We get very prideful at what we've accomplished, and we become despondent and despaired at what we can't do. But when we stop and we realize that it's not about what we do or what we've accomplished, but what Christ has done in our behalf, it becomes unbelievably encouraging. Right? It's, it's not about me. It's not about what I've done. It's about what Christ has done for me, what God is doing in me through Jesus Christ. And we are unbelievably, eternally, and infinitely encouraged by this truth. We're encouraged by this. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We're encouraged by this, that our justification rests in what Jesus has done, not in what we have done. So understanding that we are fully justified by faith gives us great encouragement. Thirdly, <coughs> excuse me, understanding that we are fully justified in Christ is eternally freeing. It's eternally Freeing in every sense of that word. If the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. It's a promise of the Scriptures. It's a promise of God through His Word. If Christ has set you free, you're free. And understanding that we've been freely justified by what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf sets us free. One of my absolute favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 8.1. All right. Romans 8, 1 comes after Romans 7. It's, it's a numerical game, I understand. It's weird. 7 and then 8. Right? So Romans 7, Paul has this conversation. And you know we can sit and argue all day. I'll probably win. But back and forth about whether Paul is a believer or not a believer. Right? When he's doing Romans chapter 7. All I know is that God used that chapter to transform my life. But Paul cries out, the things I want to do are not the things I do do. And the things I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing. And he's going back and forth. And he's like, I'm at war with the members of my mind. Because on one side I love God. I want to serve God. On the other side I love sin. And I'm serving sin. And then he cries 
cries out, who will set me free from this body of death? And then Romans 8, 1. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to say that again, church, so that sinks deep into your heart. And keep in mind that Romans 8, 1 is not because of what you've done. Nothing about Romans 8.1 rests on what you've done or what you've accomplished. All of Romans 8.1 rests upon what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are set free. Free in Christ. Free to rejoice and bask in the love and the acceptance of the Father. Free to be loved by him, free to be accepted by him. And here's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that because of Jesus Christ, you could not be more loved by God. You ever feel like God, oh God, why don't you love me more? You know what the gospel screams at you? I can't. I can't love you more. Because I love you with all the love that I have for my son, Jesus Christ, which is this infinitely deep and Trinitarian love, which, which extends beyond creation and time to eternity past and eternity future. And God says, I, I can't love you more. And we say, God, why don't you, I wish you would accept me more. If I did this, you'd accept me more. And God goes, I can't accept you more. The gospel screams at us, I can't accept you more. Because I accept you with all the acceptance I have for my son, Jesus Christ, which is this infinitely beautiful acceptance that spans time and eternity and creation to eternity past and eternity future. And understanding that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ sets us free. The chains have fallen off and we are free in Christ Jesus. So those three, understanding we're justified, crushes pride and facilitates Christ's honor and humility. Understanding we're fully justified by, by faith gives us immense encouragement. Understanding that we're fully justified by Christ is eternally freeing. And fourthly, fourthly, and if you hear anything I say this morning, please, this is it. Understanding that we are fully justified in Christ causes us to stand in the awe and the beauty of the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Understanding that we are not justified by what we have accomplished, but by what Christ has done for us, causes us to come on humble knees before the throne of Jesus and stand in awe of His greatness and His glory and His beauty. And Christ Christ ascends the, the place that he rightly deserves in our life as Lord and Savior. And we, as servants of our King, we stand there in humble adoration and we cry out, Glory, glory, glory and honor to Christ forever and ever. Amen. For he is a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that I might be set free, that I might have life, that I might be forgiven and have grace and mercy and kindness showered upon me by my Father in heaven. Glory and honor be unto Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. Men, and Christ is infinitely beautiful to us. And so I, I want to say to you this morning, church, don't lose sight of how we are justified. Verse 5, Paul calls it the truth of the gospel. We are justified by what Christ has done. Martin Luther, Martin Luther set a flame 
across, the, across Europe and across the world when he realized that we're not justified by what we do. We're justified by Christ. And as we understand this, as we grasp this, as we see this, Christ just begins to grow in his beauty and his wonder and his glory. And we, we as people, we stand and we bathe in his grace. So I hope, I hope this morning that I've achieved my humble goal, which is to cause you to feel your hopelessness and your helplessness apart from Christ. There's nothing you can do. And I hope that I've encouraged us all to look to Jesus and to be justified in him and then to stand in all of his radiant beauty and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I praise you and thank you for your word. I praise you and thank you, Father, from the bottom of my heart for Jesus Christ, for what you have accomplished for us through him, Lord. Would you remind us all that we are not justified by what we can accomplish, but we are justified by our faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And may he be glorified in our lives. May we go this morning, Father. May we leave this place and may we bear with us this message that there is nothing you can do to be made right before God. Save, come to him through Jesus Christ as as Lord and Savior. We love you, Father, and we praise you and thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen.